this morning for our scripture, we are turning to um, Exodus, Exodus chapter 17, Exodus chapter 17. If you have your Bibles, there are also Bibles there in the pews in front of you, and the scripture will also be on the screen as we read. It goes like this. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why do you bring us out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, what am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, go out in front of the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Oreb, strike the rock and the water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the place Massa and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord amongst us or not?
Did you make your rounds to that movie yet in some of your Christmas movies? Uh, it's one of my favorites and one of my favorite scenes. Another question, have you ever received one of those not-so-pleasant gifts for Christmas before? My parents were here today, so that never happened to me. <laughs> but I know it happened to all of you, so, you know, the, the ones that you're really having a hard time saying thank you for, someone say, oh, did you get my present? I got it. Thanks. Thank you. And really what's going on in our mind is we can immediately think of what we're going to buy instead when we take it to this, back to the store and, uh, and get the refund uh, for it. And we're in this series called Simply Christmas. And in this series, we are finding ways where less is more. And the idea that we would have less of something in order that we would have more of something else. Now, our culture, especially around the holidays, continues to scream at us of more. We need more. More sales, more deals, more gifts, more presents, more activities, more parties, more and more and more. And we sometimes feel ourselves just caught up in the midst of, of all of it. But I think this season really serves as, I think, more of an example of how our regular lives go as well. We're constantly being bombarded with requests to do more of this and more of that. And the problem with that is, well, in many ways, kind of like this jar. I filled this jar with peanut M&Ms and holiday-colored regular M&Ms. I got these from Pastor Jim's office. He doesn't know this um, because he has so much candy left over. Um, I just go in there and take what I, take what I want. So many times in our, we see our lives like this jar, but oftentimes our impression is, is that we have space to fill. We have margin. We have time. We have capacity. And so when we say yes to all of these things being requested of us, we think that there is room for it. But the truth is, is that everything, every piece, every level of this jar is already spoken for. And yet, when we say yes, we try to cram other things. These are Skittles. And we try to cram more into the jar. And when what happens, either the thing that we're trying to put in there only goes halfway in, or what's more common is that as we pour certain things into our jars, into our lives, other things spill out. And if, if it's my story, my example, I can tell you, that it's the stuff that I would ultimately say is more meaningful and important to me. Those are the things that end up spilling out. So I say yes to more and more activities, but what gets harmed in the process is that quality time with my family. Or I say yes to more roles and responsibilities, things that occupy my brain and cause stress and anxiety, and what is harmed is my relationship with God when I'm trying to sit down and focus and pray and spend time with the Lord in devotion and reading my Bible. It's those things that are most meaningful oftentimes are the things that spill out when we have the request of more and more and more and we just keep saying yes. And so in this series, we're looking at having less of certain things so that we can have more of the God stuff, the things that God has gifted us with, the things that God has, has blessed us with in our lives. And last week, Pastor Steve addressed less spending in order that we would have more giving. 
And I don't know about you, but these sort of less and more things are really challenging for me because I find myself getting caught up in all of it. So today I want to share a little bit about less complaining, more encouraging. Now, at all places within Scripture, and this is sort of Bible 101, at all places, no matter where you read in the Bible, you will find an unveiling or a revelation of the human condition, like what it truly means to be a human being. And sometimes throughout the Bible, you find these sort of shining star examples that really let out, that really illustrate what it means to be human. And this story in Exodus, I find, is one of those particular stories. And if you don't know the background, the Hebrew people are, uh, are, are trapped in, in slavery in Egypt, and they're treated harshly for generation after generation at the hands of Pharaoh. And the people cry out to God. And here's what it says uh, from, the, from God's perspective. He says, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of the, their slave drivers. And I am concerned about their suffering. And so God then calls this fellow Moses and tells him to go and liberate his people from the hands of Pharaoh. And reluctantly, he goes, and God uses him in mighty ways. And even though Pharaoh does not release the Hebrews right away, there is a series of convincing plagues and, oh, I don't know, the angel of death that finally the Pharaoh says, okay, I'm going to release these people. And they're free. They are liberated. But as the people are gathered together and encamped around the Red Sea, Pharaoh changes his mind. He gathers his army, and he's ready to destroy those Hebrew people. And Moses takes his staff in a dramatic fashion. He parts the Red Sea, and God's people are able to pass through the Red Sea. And as Pharaoh and his army are, are chasing after them, the waters sweep over them, and they are freed. They are liberated. And after that liberation, after that Miracle, the act of God, they, they have a song that they, that they lift up to God, and it begins with this. It says, I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Both horse and driver has been hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. Now, it's important to understand that these Hebrew people are still getting to know God. They really didn't know. They just heard echoes of who God was when they were crying out, when they were in the midst of slavery. But they're still getting to know this Yahweh God. And so these miracles, these acts are little ways in which they can continue to get to know God and get to know themselves as God's People, which is why the events after this story are so important. Now, the Exodus story is really the hallmark story of declaring who God is. God is a liberating God. God is a God of love and of mercy and has heard their cries and has freed them, a God of freedom. But these next stories, I think, are equally important because they really show the human heart, the human condition. It begins as they are traveling along, they become the people become thirsty. They are wandering around in the wilderness, and they're on their way to the promised land, a land promised them, they said, a land flowing with milk and honey. It was promised to them, so they're sort of wandering around. They become thirsty, and they begin complaining to 
Moses. And Moses says, well, what do you want, what do you want me to do? And God goes back, or Moses goes back to God saying, you know, what, what am I supposed to do here? And they found a pool, a spring of water, but the water was bitter, and they couldn't drink it. And so Moses uh, touches the water with his staff, and the water becomes sweet, and they're able to drink it. God provides. Then they go a little bit longer, further along, and suddenly they become hungry. And they complain to, to Moses, and this time they sort of ramp up their complaint. They say things like, it was better for us back in Egypt, which I find hard to believe, than for our situation right now. And Moses in that time reminds them, look, I hear your complaint, but just so you know, you're not really complaining against me. You're complaining against God. And so God provides for them once again. He rains down manna or bread from heaven along with quail, and they eat and they are satisfied. Go a little bit further along, and we get to chapter 17 here in Exodus, and once again, they are thirsty, and their complaint continues to ramp up, and they are ready to take Moses' life, and Moses is saying to God, what am I supposed to do with these people? I can't give them what they want, and so God has Moses go a little bit further to a rock. He strikes the rock with his staff, and water gushes out, and the people are satisfied once again, and at the end of that little story, a memorial is built. Now, oftentimes memorials are, you know, the general purpose is to remember an event, remember what actually happened in that place. And they're not always tales of heroism or success, right? We often see memorials or monuments that are, are placed as a reminder of a difficult past that we are not to repeat again. If you've ever gone to, for example, a Holocaust museum or or monument, we're sort of filled with both stories of heroism and examples of people's bravery, but also a reminder of a past that we should not repeat. What's interesting about this particular monument, well, here's what the scripture says about it. It says, he called the place Masa, Masa meaning uh, 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 test, and Mirabah, which means quarrel, because the Israelites quarreled and tested the Lord, saying, is, this, is the Lord among us or not? So previously they were crying out to God for help in the completeness of their humility. God, help us. This time they're crying out to God, but they're crying in the form of a complaint. So what's the difference? When I complain, and I do it more than I want, when I complain, it's often that I'm trying to find a culprit. I'm trying to find a party that's responsible for my hardship or for my misfortune. Case in point, one of my jobs at home is to wash the dishes. It's just, you know, one of my... One of my jobs at, at home. Amanda mostly does the cooking. Every once in a while, I talk her into cooking. But something happens in the midst of my cooking. I suddenly have visions of me being uh, a contestant on a, on a uh, food show on the Food Network. And I suddenly, you know, ignore measurements and throwing in spices here and there. And in my mind, it's going to be wonderful. But it never turns out that way. So I get fired from that position uh, for a few months until... It's time for me to, to give it a go again. So mostly Amanda cooks and I wash the dishes. And let me tell you, I hate it. 
I, I, I hate the dishes. You put that work into doing the dishes and cleaning them all up, and they go right back out the next day and dirty themselves again. They're like kids. And I hate it. And the last thing I want to do sometimes is do the dishes, especially after a long, hard day. It's the last thing that I want to deal with. And sometimes they build up. And of course, they build up. Again, the last thing that I want to, to look at or to deal with. And so sometimes I'm just frustrated about the dishes. And there's just something within me when I'm frustrated that I have to find a responsible party. And so I start thinking, well, gosh, you know, if my son didn't eat so many peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, I wouldn't have to scrape off this dried up crusted pe- uh, jelly on, on the knives. Or why can't my family understand how to stack the bowls? They're so stackable. Why can't we stack the bowls? They're just laying everywhere. Look, just, I just stacked one. Why can't we stack? Who isn't stacking these bowls? And I begin to find a responsible party, and I begin to play the blame game because someone is responsible for my misfortune. And I find myself in the midst of complaint. In my mind, when I'm complaining, it's completely justified. And it's just the simple, natural response of my circumstances. And I wouldn't complain if I didn't have to face these circumstances. Am I right? Like if this problem wasn't here, if this difficulty wasn't here, if I could just remove those circumstances that are either difficult or unfair, if I could just remove those from my life, then I'd have nothing to complain about. The truth is that complaining has little to do with our circumstances. In this scripture, a monument was built to remind the people of a miracle event. Their problem was solved. And not only solved, but by a miracle, the very intervention of Almighty God. And they built a monument, not in honor of God and who God is and his providence and his love and his grace and, for heaven's sakes, his patience with a complaining people. They didn't, uh, they didn't place a monument to remind them of God. They didn't place a monument to remind them that their problem was solved for them. You know what they, they placed a monument about? To remind them of their complaining. (laughs) That their complaining was more about the solution to their issues. That it really had nothing to do with their circumstance altogether. That when they are in the midst and standing in the midst of complaining, there is this question that hangs over their head and it hangs over our head as well. And the question is a question of faith. It's simple. Is the Lord among us or not? Is God there or isn't he? Now, this is a tough question because we face some some difficulties in our lives. And there are people around the world that face tragedies and difficulties in their lives. And that's not to sweep them under the rug or water them down or any of that. But still, in the midst of all the biggest valleys and trials and tragedies, that question still remains. So is God here or or isn't he? Last week, Pastor Steve mentioned that it's not Christmas yet. <laughs> and I'm kind of a Grinch about this. It's not really Christmas yet, you know. Uh, Christmas comes later. We, right now, we are in Advent. 
And Advent comes from the Latin word Adventus, which means arrival. And Advent is the season of waiting and of of preparation. And the cool thing is that just as the first century people before Jesus were waiting for a Messiah and they were vigilant for a Messiah, we too, as people of faith today, we are we have the same waiting and the same vigilance because Jesus promised to come back a second time to see the end, to see the fulfillment of the kingdom of God that he started when he came the first time. And so right now, we are in the midst of the unfolding kingdom that God continually is breaking through. So when Jesus came the first time, he ushered in the kingdom of God. It is currently unfolding, and we wait vigilantly for the fulfillment of God's kingdom. And so we also are waiting for Advent in the same way as the people of faith did before Jesus came around. Before Jesus came, there was some things that happened, some stirring, and many of you know the nativity story. The nativity is the story of, of Christmas. And you all know that Mary, the mother of Jesus, an angel visits her and says, hey, you're gonna have a baby, and explains that it's the Messiah, the Christ, and, and all, of those, all those things. And she becomes pregnant, and there's a scandal because they weren't married, and Joseph's like, I'm not the father, and he's trying to figure out what to do, and he could have dismissed her, he could have had a stone, there's lots of different things. And the angel visits Joseph and explains everything to Joseph saying that Christ, the Messiah, will be born to them and that he will be the Messiah's earthly daddy. And as Matthew, the book of Matthew is explaining this, uh, the author Matthew gives a little commentary in chapter one, starting with verse 22. He says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Matthew here is quoting Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, and it was a prophecy about the Messiah, Emmanuel, God with us. When we face difficult circumstances, when life seems unfair, and it is, or when we witness injustices in the world, And when we are prone to complain about it, because that's sort of what we do, we have to find that responsible party. When we're prone to complain about it, and we have that question hanging over our heads, is the Lord among us or not? In the midst of our difficulties, we have an answer. It's Emmanuel. God with us. Is the Lord among us or not? Emmanuel. God with us. And that's what this season means. Emmanuel is maybe a little bit deeper and more mysterious than, than we could even speak about or articulate. It just seems to be still our compulsion sometimes to, when we're facing difficulties, that we have to just remove those or we have to solve our problems. So we have to Uh, figure out our our difficulties, that we just sort of have to do it ourselves. We have to solve it ourselves. And yet, we have this message of Emmanuel, which which says that we have this almighty, awesome, all-powerful, majestic God that stands in glory, and yet somehow has humbled himself to be Emmanuel, to be 
with us. And that the greatest need that we might have maybe is not just the solution to our problems, but something deeper. That very presence of God, Emmanuel, that God is is with us. So whatever you might do during this, this holiday season, I wonder if we could remember Emmanuel. The early Christians, as they were trying to figure out their life and faith and what it meant to be a person of God, they were living in the midst of a lot of suffering. Things were definitely not going well for them, and they were experiencing persecutions that we probably will never know about. I mean, there are people probably in the world that do know about that, but we probably don't. And they suffered and were persecuted for their faith. And in the early church, um, it was a hallmark of their faith to suffer, not to experience all the successes and um, prosperity that you hear some people say, but in the early church, it was suffering. Suffering was the mark of the faithful Christian. And so in the letter to the Romans, Paul was encouraging them, and he says, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children, Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Jesus' presence makes all the difference. And we have Emmanuel, no matter what we would face. In the midst of complaining, we often operate out of a perspective of scarcity. We focus on what we don't have, and we tend to complain about it. That's where complaining comes from. But the difference of Emmanuel is that we move from a a perspective of scarcity, and suddenly we begin to see not what we don't have, but what we do have. The abundance that has been gifted to us because of Jesus. And so instead of complaining and griping about what we don't have, suddenly we begin to consider what we do have and specifically what we have maybe to give away to others. When I was a missionary in Haiti, um, I was a teacher of a school and we became close with some of the street kids. They had nothing to do during the no opportunity to go to school or maybe they got kicked out of a school. And one street kid, his name was Stanley, that we got to know. He was kind of an ordinary little kid, but... Uh, Stanley was misunderstood in his appearance because he kind of had a round face and he had a larger stomach. And people thought, well, he eats well, he's well cared for. And the truth is, his protruding stomach was the result of something else, maybe malnourishment. And so Stanley was hungry one day and he came to me and he said, Mr. Eric, that's what he called me, Mr. Eric, I'm hungry, could you get me something to eat? And I said, sure. So we walked out to a vendor on the street and I bought him just what they had, a little package of crackers, just something to tide him over. And he thanked me with a cute smile and he walked down the street and I was watching him because I knew a dilemma was gonna take place with him because he's walking towards all the other street kids and I knew that they were hungry too. And I watched this kid, Stanley, as he opened the package of crackers And he began handing out the crackers to all of his friends that were hungry and just had one left 
for himself. I mean, here's a kid that has less, but he had something to give away. And I think encouragement works that way. That when we are filled with the presence of Jesus Christ, when we experience Emmanuel, that is God with us, we have so much more to give than we could ever fathom or imagine. And we can lift others up and build them up and encourage them because of Emmanuel. Yesterday, Pastor Steve mentioned we had a um, funeral service for Cricket Rastel, one of our members, a young woman who um, finally came to the end of her battle with cancer. And as I was sort of meeting with the family and getting to know her through her family's stories and friends' stories, I realized that as she, her pain and suffering sort of began to ramp up, she became closer to Jesus. And what's interesting is that one of the things I heard from people, not once, not once in the midst of that difficulty did she complain. But I'll tell you what I did hear. I heard a lot of people say, you know, in those, those last few months, years, she was such an encouragement. She was such a light, a bright spot for me. Emmanuel makes all the difference. First Thessalonians 5, 9 through 11 says this. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that, so that, whether we are awake or asleep, we may, catch this, live together with him. Therefore, since we live together with him, therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as, in fact, you are doing. It's because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. It's because of Emmanuel that we have so much to give. And I know that we face difficulties and we face trials and that sometimes life isn't fair. We certainly have reason to complain, but there's something about Emmanuel. Our culture, our our society will tell you that it's never enough, that we need to keep having more to fill those voids, to have more to be happy, more to be joyful, more to be fulfilled or content with our lives. And Emmanuel says, I I am and I have done enough. And so I wonder, what does that look like for us, not only during this holiday season, but what does that look look like for our lives? What does it look like to live out of that lens of abundance rather than of scarcity? What does it look like when we step out of our homes each and every new day saying, I have enough because of Emmanuel and I have plenty to give? I wonder, what does that look like for you? Emmanuel makes all the difference. Let me pray.
Lord, we sit in the midst of our humanness, facing all kinds of difficulties and trials, and they are real, and they are tough. But in the midst of those, we do have that question hanging over our heads, that challenging question, is the Lord among us or not? In that question, God, reveal Emmanuel. Lord, we do not pray simply for the solution to our problems or that we would be removed from the difficulties of life, but most importantly, that we would be united with you in relationship. Because while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us that we could be reconciled with you for eternity. In Jesus, we have enough, Lord. Help us to live out of that enough. Teach us what that means. Give us new eyes to see how we can encourage those around us. That even by sheer extension, Lord, as we are united with you and interact with those in the world, people would see you through us only by your grace. We pray this out of your power and out of your might. And in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me? The first century Christians were praying for Emmanuel to come. Let's sing that song. And rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel, shall come to Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. Once more, rejoice. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Shall come to you, Israel. Shall come to you, Israel. Emmanuel is here, and he is with you. As you go forth, go knowing in the assurance and the trust of Emmanuel, and make a difference in the world around you because of it. Go in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and in his peace. Amen.